The following is a message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. More information about Parkview is available at www.parkviewchurch.org. Good morning, church. I'm Doug, one of the pastors here. Great to be with you today and with people live streaming. Hello to you too. Um, I just got to say, I, maybe it's been happening for months and I just am dialing in. But I'd say the last four to six weeks or so, just hearing your voices uh, sing and worship has been awesome. Like I think, I know something's happening. So I appreciate that. And the job that John and Jacob and the others do in leading us is not an easy job. I mean, just look around. We're pretty diverse, a lot of different ages, a lot of different preferences, and I'm just very thankful for uh, their prayers and their work in leading us in worship, but you guys are sounding good. Keep it up. That's awesome stuff. So um, slightly sleep-deprived here, prom night for both my daughters last night, and um, a group of girls spent the night at our house last night, got in at 1.30 from party after prom and all that mess going on. It's good stuff, and everybody's still happy, so that's all good. So hope you've had a good week. Um, really excited about today's passage. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah chapter 41. If you don't, um, you can use your phone app. That's fine. The outline in your bulletin will really help you follow along as well. We are in an amazing section of the Bible. I think it's maybe one of the most posterized sections. There are so many verses in these chapters that have been an encouragement to people over the centuries. So excited for us to jump into it. Um, We're looking at this guy named Isaiah. Isaiah. He I was a prophet, lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. And his big theme in these four chapters we're looking at today is fear not. There's seven different times he just made that statement, made that command, fear not. And we're going to see several reasons why uh, we should not fear. So um, just before we get going, like, what are you afraid of? Okay. What, what, what scares you? I mean, there's kind of the silly things we have. I'm the spider patrolman in our house, so, Dad, there's a spider! You know, like, I, I'm that guy. I go get the spider, and it's not a big deal. I'm not afraid of spiders or snakes. I am afraid of bats. Like, and some of you have heard those stories probably too many times, but two houses ago, uh, we had some bat issues, and so there were many just epic battles between me and bats that involved and ended up with broken chairs and light fixtures and windows, and honestly, those things freak me out. I mean, I know, and I don't just indiscriminately kill animals, but when they come in my house and start coming for my neck, it's over. It's game on. So, and what's so scary is when you kill those things, finally, they're just like, they're so small. But honestly, when they fly, it's just, and racquetball rackets are my weapon of choice there. So that's, uh, again, I don't climb in trees just to kill bats. But again, if it's me in the neck, they're coming after it's over. So, but I mean, so we got those silly things. Public speaking is for some, uh, heights or flying is for some. I think when God says fear not, I think he's going deeper into the heart level. I mean, there's some heart level stuff that we all battle, I think, that we're afraid of. Um, A lot of them, I think, start with the letter F, like we're afraid of the future. We're afraid of what's happening in in this go-round of politics, what's happening to our country, so the future, finances, you know, will I have enough? How's the economy going to do? Or sometimes we're afraid of things involving our family. Like, how are the kids going to turn out? Am I going to be a good parent? Is God going to give me a family? Those kind of things. And uh, a lot of times it's also we're afraid of what people think of us. We're pra- afraid of being approved by the people around us. Those are big fears. And honestly, if you think about it, if we're living in fear, 
we are not at our best. Okay, if we are in freak out mode, I mean, just ask your kids, like, do you like it when mom and dad are like in freak out mode? Like, no, you're not a good parent. Like the things you say will have an edge to them. The things that are meant to be said calmly or probably best said calmly will be said with a punch and a volume that probably didn't need to be delivered. That happens sometimes. We get jumpy, edgy. Uh, We don't sleep well at night, and I don't know when your last sleepless night was, but we just replay the fears in our minds, and so we are clearly not at our best when we're afraid. And, and the heart-level fears, I think, paralyze us from doing things that God would really have us do. For example, um, when, when we're really overwhelmed with fear of what other people will think, sometimes we'll just stay quiet when we really should have said something. Or when we see an injustice, we'll become kind of passive about it. Edmund Burke has this quote that is powerful. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil uh, is for good men to do nothing. So when fear paralyzes us from moving in injustice, that's not a good thing. When fear causes us not to engage the broken and the hurting and the neglected because it might mess my life up or it might inconvenience me, um, then that's, that's... moving us from what God would have us do. Isn't it a good thing that Jesus didn't shrink back in fear when he saw our need and our brokenness and our hurt? Sometimes out of fear, um, we're going to conceal sin. Uh, I loved what John said earlier before communion that this should be the safest place to come forth with our sin. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another. Don't hide them. The way to really have victory over sin is to confess them to one another, but yet we're afraid that people are going to think, like so many people think, oh, I'm the worst person in this church, so I better not say anything. Here's a newsflash. You're in a room filled with very sinful people, and the way you remedy sin is not hiding it, but just coming out with it and confessing it. And sometimes it's fear that'll make us work so hard because we just are convinced that it's up to us and God's not going to do anything. And I got I to gotta help myself here. And sometimes we work so hard to prove ourselves to other people. All these are reasons why Psalm 37, 8 says, fret not yourself because it only leads to evil. I think we're living in a day as Christians in our country where fear is at, I think, an all-time high. We may have had a season as Christians in this country where we had cultural and political favor, where a lot of times the things that we believed or we thought the government would also back up or in general the trends of our society would back up, but things are very different. In fact, I've been reading a fascinating book. It's called Good Faith, and it's, the subtitle is Being a Christian When Society Thinks That You Are Irrelevant or Extreme. For example, we're our, and they do a lot of surveying. They work with the Barnett Organization. So, for example, in our country today, if you try to convert someone to your faith, so in our angle, if you are so overwhelmed with God's goodness that you want another person to experience that, if you try to convert somebody to what you believe, 60% of our country today would say that you are an extremist. In 2008, when Barack Obama was running for president and he was asked his view on marriage, he said that he believed that marriage was for one man and one woman uh, committed to each other in a life of marriage. But now in 2016, if you say that that is your view of marriage, in many pockets of our country, you will be viewed as as an extremist. And so things are changing rapidly. And so what a lot of Christians are doing are just kind of shrinking back and cowering in fear. And in many ways, fear is paralyzing Christians. 
this study, the one, one way that revealed itself to me was, this was probably the most fascinating part of that book to me, was they did a study and they asked all the different segments of our society, um, how hard is it for you to engage in a meaningful conversation with all the other different segments of our population? So evangelical Christians were one segment, and they asked evangelical Christians, how hard is it for you to engage in a meaningful conversation with, and so listen to some of these breakdowns, with a Muslim, it was 87% of Christians struggled to have a meaningful conversation with a Muslim. Um, with an atheist, it was 85%. And with somebody from the LGBT community, it was 87%. Like, so I, th this is uh, not a good trend because God has been good to us and God would long for us. God is for us so that we can be for our city and our country and our culture and the people that live in it. Um, but if we're afraid to speak out for what is true or if we're afraid to build friendships through which um, we can show them and demonstrate to them the love of God, like how is our faith gonna be passed on? How will others from various communities and people that today may believe differently than you or act differently than you, there, that, there's no excuse there for us to just wipe them off. Like God would say, just like Jesus, we're to live full of grace and truth. But in order to live graciously, to befriend and, and to stand up for what's true, it's gonna take courage. And again, let me just say, we need both wings of that airplane. You don't just need to be truth guy and just start blasting everybody. You don't need to just be grace guy and be everybody's friend. We need to be full of grace and truth. But to do that, we're gonna need courage. And I really think that the greatest danger of our faith not being passed on to the next generation is what do the younger, like I'm thinking my kids, high school age, junior high kids, looking up at the faith of their parents, what do they see? Do they see us living courageously and boldly, full of grace and truth? Or do they see us cowering and complaining and afraid and quiet and timid and passive? Like honestly, if they're catching whiffs of passivity and fear, this looks boring. The Christian life is boring. Show me something else that will be the adventure that I'm gonna give my life toward. Um, if you were here this week to hear Paul and Andrea, two of our global workers, they're serving in the Middle East. They're serving refugees that are fleeing ISIS. And I asked Paul this week, like, so how far is ISIS from where you live with your family and young kids? And he saw they're about 40 miles. Like even, I'm just, I didn't realize it was that close. He goes, oh yeah, and occasionally they'll see ISIS patrols coming through our city kind of scouting us out. It's like, you know, think about the things we feared this week, and yet there's an example of because of their love for Jesus, their understanding of what Jesus has done for them, that they're pushing through fears to extend goodness to people in the midst of an intensely, um, you know, tough part of our world. And so... I want to be a man that lives courageously, not a man who lives by fear. And my longing is for you and your families, your, this church, to be known for our courage, not to be known as a people of fear. So, guys, these are some great verses we're going to look at today. May God just inject our hearts today with courage to live without fear. Let's pray before we look at these great passages. And could you start... And just could you ask God to show you the fear that's in your heart? What are some fears that God in his love for you would love to just put a finger on this morning and just say, get rid of that. You don't need that. So just ask God to teach you this morning about your fears.
And then could you ask God to speak through me? A little tired this morning, definitely feeling a little weak. Could you pray that God would speak powerfully through his word this morning? God, encourage your people today. Remind us of why you say, fear not. In your great name we pray, amen. All right, we're going to look at three reasons why God says fear not. We're going to see these again in Isaiah 41 through 44. The first fear not is fear not because the Lord is in control. Again, I encourage you to follow your outline. There's things to fill out there. You can take notes there. But fear not because the Lord is in control. Isaiah 41 verses 1 and 2 say this. uh, Listen to me in silence, O coastlands, and let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach Let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. And then I want you to notice this verse, especially verse two. Who stirred up one from the east, whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot and he makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. Okay, what's that talking about? First of all, this is talking about a future leader who is yet to come, and it's a leader, Cyrus, okay? A quick update on Isaiah. Isaiah chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah is a prophet speaking from God, and he's speaking to his contemporaries. And his message is, you guys, we've got to straighten up. We've been idolaters, we've been living in immorality, and we've shown injustice to the poor. We've got to change our ways or God will judge us. The people didn't listen. And so what happened was uh, Isaiah's contemporaries were invaded by Babylon and many of them were taken into captivity. But what you see in chapters 40 through 66 is God speaking through Isaiah the prophet to the next generation, the crew of God's people who are in Babylon, who are about ready to be released from the captivity and come back to the land. And so uh, to that group, he's telling them that God is going to raise up a leader who's going to set you free from Babylon. And look at these two verses, Isaiah 44, 28 and Isaiah 45, 1. It says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, She shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him, and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him, that gates may not be closed. Uh, What's fascinating about this is that Isaiah is talking about a guy who's not even in charge yet. He, in some Some people think he wasn't even born yet, okay? He's talking about a future coming leader named Cyrus. When Isaiah was prophesying, Babylon was the ruling empire. But God raised up Cyrus um, in the Persians, and they were the ones that defeated the Babylonian empire. And so where the Babylonians would invade a people and conquer the land, they would take their people captive. Cyrus had a whole different strategy. His strategy was when he conquered a people, he let the people go from captivity. He wanted them to go back to their home cities and to worship their gods there. One of his motives may have been this, that he, he himself did not worship um, Isaiah's God. But if Isaiah and his people would go and worship God and pray for him, he was good with that. Like I want, his, his motto was, I want all the people praying to their gods for me. Like, let's do that. And so he was for other people going back and he even funded and financed God's people going back. And where he wasn't the exact ruler that saw the full establishment of temple of Jerusalem and the wall, he is the one that opened that possibility 
from a human standpoint, he is the one that opened that possibility to even happen. There's a, there's a Jewish historian named Josephus. This would be interesting. Nothing rock solid on this. But one of his thoughts as a historian was that Cyrus actually read the book of Isaiah and was encouraged, if not fired up, by seeing his name in a prophecy and going like, whoa, that's what I'm supposed to do? Let's get on it. Like, let's go for it. And possibly even we're going to study the prophet Daniel this summer. Daniel um, had a respected uh, position in the government in exile. And it may have even been a guy like Daniel said, hey, let me, let me show you some prophecy here, man. Your name's in the Bible, dude. Like, look what you're supposed to do. And that may have even fired him up. But the, the main point is, is that when God makes a promise to his people, because he's in complete control, he can do whatever he wants. He can bring any piece of his creation into, into bear, into making sure that that promise happens. He can even raise up a pagan king that isn't even born yet to be the one that fulfills his promise to his people. That's phenomenal. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will. God doesn't cower to any political power or to any nation. We saw that last week. But instead, God uses them to fulfill his promises to his people. And so I just wonder this morning, like what circumstances have been robbing your joy or your confidence in God's ability to fulfill his promises? And we have to cling to his promises. And remember, he's in control. He can do whatever he needs to do to make sure what he has said is going to happen, all right? So fear not, God is in charge, God is in control. Here's the second reason, you guys. It says, fear not because the Lord loves his people. You guys, get ready. You are about to hear some of the most encouraging, most of the, the most inspiring verses, I believe, in, in maybe all the Bible. But, but God is gonna just overwhelm you with how much he loves you. The New Testament says that perfect love casts out all fear. And so we looked at how great God is last week. He measures the water in his hands. He measures the universe, you know, billions, billions miles with the span of his hand. And so if we know God is great, that's one thing, but it doesn't really help us unless we know he's also good and he's also committed to us and that he loves us. And what you're going to see here is that clearly the Lord loves his people. He is as good as he is great, okay? So three things I see in these passages that show God's love for us. One is, is that the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us, okay? Uh, Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, Isaiah 41, 10 and 13. God says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. You guys, how would you live differently if you believed those verses? How would you live differently if you were convinced that God was with you? That you were never alone? That you were never weak? That you were never just kind of out there and there's no hope? But if you knew that the creator of the universe was with you, you know, God is trying to just convince us of his love by saying, I am with you. He's not the kind of guy that made you and just kind of set you off and like, hope that goes well for you. You know, like he wants to be right with you. And you see that theme 
throughout the Bible, you see the theme throughout the Gospels that Jesus, when he came to earth, wanted, it was known as God with us. And when you see Jesus' prayer in the garden right before his crucifixion, um, he, his prayer was that his people would be with him for all of eternity. He, he longs for you to be with him. In John 14, he told his disciples, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you can be also. Because like that's the heart of the Father is for you to know that he is always with you. And so um, that, that's a powerful, powerful concept that God's love for us is proved and that he wants to be with us. And you look at verse 14, it kind of, okay, wait, that feels like a curveball. Look at verse 14. So again, he says, fear not, but then look what he calls us. You worm Jacob, <laughs> you men of Israel. Um, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord, your redeemer, the holy one of Israel. Okay, what's this worm stuff here? Okay, okay, God, there's, you know, he calls, last week he called us grass. We're here and gone. Um, there's other places in the Old Testament where we're called grasshoppers. So this isn't God taunting you. This isn't God like saying, you're nothing, man. You're a worm, man. Look at me. Look how great I am. You're a worm. He's, there's not, not an evil intent here. I think he's just being honest with us. You know, apart from me, if you just try to wing it on this life, you just try to go out there on your own, I mean, compared to the almighty creator God who does this to the universe, who does this to the waters, uh, it's you against him. You're a worm. Okay? Like, I think he's really loving us when he's telling us, you're a worm, you're grass, uh, you're a grasshopper. And um, this flies completely against, uh, it's being called the new moral code in our culture, which has some foundational beliefs like this. To find yourself, you have to look within yourself. Um, that people can't criticize somebody else's life choices. That to be fulfilled in life, you have to pursue the things that you desire most, that you think are best. And that if we're going to enjoy ourselves, uh, that's the highest calling in life, is just to find enjoyment. What's the focus there? It's me, me, me. And I don't think that's a new moral code. I think that's been around since the first sin. Like, I think that we are pretty good at just telling God, I don't need you. I got this. I can do this on my own. And God, just in his love for us, says, you know, you're a worm. Like, okay, so um, one reason fear could erupt in your life is because you're just showing your wormness. Like you're just, you're trying to just, in all your worm strength, trying to push your way through this life. And God says, that's not, that's not gonna go. Like, so, but, but fear not because I am with you. The almighty God is committed. And if you're in a tough spot and you don't even know what to do, he says, you just put your hand up and I'm right there with you. I got you by the hand. His powerful hand, right? Is just grabbing you and walking you through it. So don't just try to put your head down little worms and just try to do that on your own. Like, put your hand up and walk through this life fearlessly with the Almighty God with you. So fear happens when we forget who is with us. Here's the second way God shows his love for us is that he redeems us. Okay, get ready for some more just amazing verses. Isaiah 43, the first couple of verses there. Um, but now, thus says the Lord... Just listen, he's going to just heap just encouragement upon encouragement on you. Listen to what he says. But now, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burned, and the flame will not consume you. 
For I am the Lord your God. Look at all the descriptors here. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Again, there's so much here. Just a couple things I want to break down. One is, you are not an accident. Like, you didn't just appear, and there you are just kind of randomly floating through this life. Did you see that God, a couple different ways, said, I created you, I formed you. It's the same word that's used in Jeremiah 18, where it talks about God being the potter and that we're the clay. Like God has just invested in you and designed you and formed you. Like you are his masterpiece. Isaiah 43, 7 says that we are created to bring him glory, to make him look good. Like he, that's why he made you. You are not an accident. It is, you know, not random chance that brought you together, but God formed you. Isaiah 43, 4 says that you are precious in his eyes. It wasn't like he made you and went, oh man, I had a bad day that day. It's like, no, he made you and he's proud of you. We have a whole wall in our house that is uh, reserved for our kids' artwork over the years. You know, back when they were little guys and they'd bring something home and you go, it's awesome, it's beautiful. What is it? You know, like that kind of day to like just, and they're so proud of it, you know, and they're just, and they're so proud to see it up on the wall. But here you're talking about the almighty creator, God, who doesn't make mistakes, he made the Grand Canyon and the Alps and the Rocky Mountains and just anything that you think is beautiful in his creation. He formed you. He created you for a purpose of bringing him glory. Like that's, that's awesome. So that jumps out. The other thing that really jumps out in those verses is the whole concept of being redeemed. He said, I have redeemed you. And so redemption means that you're giving value to something that lost its value, okay? And Actually, the word that he used, it, it tapped into something that was in Hebrew culture at that time, uh, the concept of the kinsman redeemer, that if you had somebody in your family or somebody that was very special to you, and they were in a lot of trouble, they were in deep debt, they were on the rocks, that you could step in and rescue them from that. He is your redeemer. And so in the short term, as Isaiah is speaking that to the next generation, you know, obviously redemption for them was being released from captivity and going back to Jerusalem. But you'll see in so many of Isaiah's promises, there's a already and a not yet. And so ultimately, when God talks about redemption, uh, we're going to see a little bit more of this in a little bit, but he's talking huge picture too, not just a certain people to be released from captivity, but he's talking about all the nations even eventually being set free from their captivity to sin. Okay, so, but this whole concept of being their redeemer. And so um, the things he really wanted them to know is that we belong to him. He knows us. He knows our name. And again, just if you can just go back to last week and how vast God is and how many stars he created and names and all of that, it would be easy for you to think how small you are, how insignificant you are compared to this massive universe he has created. Yet God says, I want you to know that I formed you, I know you by name, and you are mine. And so that means you and, and both of us, all of us, have amazing value because of who owns us. There was one of those fancy uh, celebrity auctions um, after Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis died. And just all these things were just out of her estate were auctioned off and cars and all this. The one that grabbed me the most was one of those silver um, measuring things, tape measure things, those metal silver things. 
what, I got three or four of them at home, $48,000 like, that that went for. It's like, I got three or four of those, they're like, what, five bucks, right, if it's my name on it, but you put Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis on it, it's 48,000. You guys, the creator of the universe is the one that owns you. He's your God, he made you, he redeemed you. What, what value, what priceless value does that give to you and to the person next to you? I mean, say that to the person next to you, like, you're incredibly valuable. Just tell them that. You are incredibly valuable. All right, so that's cool. But that's, that's so true that another reason you know God loves you is because he's redeemed you. And the last one is this, is that the Lord satisfies us. The Lord satisfies us. This is another theme you see throughout the prophets, is that God alone is God. God alone is our rock. And so... Um, let me, I forgot, I was supposed to ask you one more question before we talk about God satisfying us. So um, when fear erupts in our lives, it's evidence, again, dashboard light, it's evidence that we have forgotten how loved we are. We have forgotten the love of God. So again, if you were convinced of the, of the love of God and how valuable you are to him, how would you live differently? How would you live more courageously this week? Okay, the third way God shows his love to us is through satisfying us. Isaiah 44, verses 6 to 8 says this, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and besides me there is no God. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So God is saying to his people, like, guys, don't look anywhere else for your satisfaction. I alone am God. I alone am your rock. And so I think the heart God is looking for from us is what you see in Isaiah 63.1, where David said, God, you are my God, and earnestly I seek you. My soul longs for you. My flesh thirsts for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Like, God, compared to you, there is nothing else on this planet that satisfies me, that protects me, that fulfills me. And so that's the place our hearts were created to go. When we need something, we go to God, okay? And God says, I alone am your rock. But the problem is, from the very first sin, the very first man and woman, is that our hearts will convince us otherwise, that we don't need God, that God is not enough. The prophet Isaiah said this, quoted God saying, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that can't hold water. That's a good description of us, that when we don't trust God and we start trusting an idol, we trust other things in our lives to satisfy us, and so um, we're led astray. And so you see that throughout Isaiah, is that he warns God's people, don't run after idols. In one section, Isaiah 44, verses 9 to 20, he talks about how foolish it is that an idol maker will chop down a tree, and from the same wood, he'll take one piece of that wood and build an idol that everybody just worships and expects to meet their needs and calm their fears. And what do they do with the rest of the wood? They just throw it on a wood pile and they roast marshmallows on it. He's like, how can you do that? Like, how can you, the same tree, part of it you're worshiping and relying on, and the other part having a weenie roast over here. Like, what's up? It doesn't make sense. It's foolish. And so easy for us to look back on that and go, ha ha, like how stupid that would be. I'm glad I don't do stuff like that. But then you just look at our human hearts and we are so drawn to 
things other than the Lord. It was John Calvin who said that our hearts are like idol factories. We're just really good at looking at other things or other people to trust in and rely in besides our God. And so the key is we've got to learn to identify our idols. The human heart was made to worship God and serve him and find our identity and our security in him. But it's so easy for us to take even good things in our lives, like our family or our profession or things we're good at, um, our relationships, the things we have, just to start looking at those things for our identity and our security. And God says, don't do that. You will have no rock. No one can satisfy you like I will satisfy you. So God is in control. Don't have fear. God loves you. He is your rock and refuge. He is with you. Do not be afraid. The last one is this. Fear not because the Lord has set you free. Fear not for the Lord has set you free. We're going to look at Isaiah 42 just for a couple minutes and we're done. There are four segments in Isaiah's prophecies that, that are, are just astonishing. They rise above, I think, a lot of his other prophecies. And they are called the servant songs. Isaiah lived about 700 years before the time of Christ. And it's in these servant songs that you see the life and the ministry of Jesus emerging. Again, even 700 years before Christ came. If you look through the Old Testament, sometimes God calls Moses his servant. I think it's like 20 times. Or he'll call David his servant. It's like 14 times. Or he'll call the, the nation of Israel his servant. But there are four different times in Isaiah where the one that God calls servant clearly rises above. Like, this isn't a human. Like, this isn't David. This isn't Moses. And this certainly isn't Israel. This is a unique servant who is to come. Some of the qualities described and given to this servant are that he'll be righteous, he'll be holy, he um, will come and be unrecognized, that he will be a light for the Gentiles, that he will give his life uh, for the sake of others, that through him others will have their sins forgiven. And the passage Jeff's going to take you through next week is one of these servant songs. But let's look at the first one. It's Isaiah 42. And just, we'll just read some of the verses here. Isaiah 42, 1. It says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. The Gospel of Matthew quoted that about the ministry of Jesus. So he will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the right hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison, those who sit in darkness. This is God saying once and for all to us, you do not need to fear because of this servant who is coming, this servant, this savior, this Jesus Christ. Because if you really get honest, if you could just lay everything in your life out on a table and say, what really should I be afraid of? Bats, spiders, public speaking, what other people think of me, the future of this country. Like you, you could measure those all out. But listen to what Jesus said. He said, don't fear those who can kill the body 
and after that can do no more. But I should show you who you should fear. We should all fear the one who, after you have been killed, has the power to throw you into hell. That's Jesus. Like, the only legitimate fear is to just think about that time where you're going to stand before the almighty, holy God, and there you are with your sin and your rebellion and your brokenness. And anything you would show him, but I was pretty good, I went to church, or I read my Bible, and it's going to be like a filthy rag to him. You have no hope except that the Lord offers you to be set free from your sin by the Savior that he sent because he loves you and he longs to be with you and he is offering to be your redeemer. And so it is so fascinating that in the midst of all these amazing prophecies that Isaiah has, that on four special occasions he elevates the, the servant who is to come, Jesus Christ. And you guys, out of all the fear in your life, that's where you've got to start. You've got to recognize that Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, and then he willingly, as predicted by Isaiah, 700 years before it happened, gave his life for you and for me, that if we put our faith in Christ, then we have a relationship with God. We become his people. And all those promises we read, that, that love we talked about becomes a reality in your life, and you truly are set free. You said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, and after that, do nothing to you. Fear the one who could cast you into hell, but through Christ and with your sins forgiven, there's no fear. You're, there's no fear. Look at Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God, if this holy, almighty, righteous God, if God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him freely give us all things? Fear not. We pray. We pray for us. God, I just pray if that's new turf for some people in the room this morning, that they would just seek out Jesus and what you have done for them, Jesus on the cross, that a friend would explain the gospel to them or they would stay after and pray with somebody and ask, what does it mean that Jesus took my sins away, that I can have life, that I can know God, that I don't have to fear hell. I just pray, God, you would make that clear to anybody that doesn't understand that this morning. And then I pray, those of us that do know you, God, we, we have just sinned against you because we are men and women who fear. And there's so many things we fear. And I thank you, though, that your posture toward us is whoever it is that's the worst offender of fear in this room or watching on live stream, whoever's the worst offender, you still love us. You still say, I am here. I am with you. You still extend your mighty right hand. So God, may we wisely just reach up and truly fear not because you are with us and because you love us, because you redeem us. And all this was proved so clearly at the cross that God, you are for us. And then please unleash me and my family and this church not to live timidly or in fear, but because you are for us, help us be for this city and the people who don't know you. Help us to move toward them generously and graciously with the truth, just like you did with us. God, unleash us. May we be known for our courage and not our fear. In your great name we pray. Amen. 
Thank you for listening to this message from Parkview Church in Iowa City, Iowa. Parkview's mission is to love God, love others, and serve the world. If you live in the Iowa City area, we invite you to join us in person for services every weekend. You can get service times and directions, download messages, and get news and information about Parkview Church by visiting www.parkviewchurch.org. You can also contact us by phone at 319-354-5580 or write to us at Parkview Church, 15 Foster Road, Iowa City, Iowa, 52245.